If you have your Bibles or scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19. Gospel of Luke in chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 in our time together this morning. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, a story that is very familiar to you. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke 19, starting verse 1. The Holy Spirit says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. It's God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. There was ever an unlikely and surprising convert to Christianity. It was Francis Thompson. Born in 1859, Thompson came from a well-to-do and religious family. His father was a medical doctor, and, and he wanted his son to follow in his footsteps and did everything possible to set him up for success and to make that happen. Francis was sent to Owens College in Manchester to medical school, but did not take to medicine and subsequently dropped out, failing his exam three times. Thompson failed at pretty much everything he tried. After leaving medical school without a degree, he lived on the streets of London for three years doing whatever work uh, he can get to survive. It was on the streets of London that he became addicted to opium to the point that people said if you looked for him and you could not find him, just go to the opium den and he'd turn up eventually. Here was a man who was set up to succeed. He had everything necessary to become like his father, but he blew it all and became a man his family would be ashamed of. And it was when Thompson was at his lowest that the gospel became clearest. But Thompson was, like C.S. Lewis would be many years later, a reluctant convert. It, it, it wasn't, isn't that Thompson did what so many do, do and claim to have done in our day, which is to seek and find God. We, of course, have in our minds that man can go out and have a look about for God, right? That man could go on a quest to seek and eventually find God. You'll hear someone say something like, you know, old boy, he found God. Or maybe you'll hear people say of themselves that they have found God. But the Bible has something different to say. Namely, that men do not go and seek God. Why? Because that is how lost man truly is. Lewis himself would go on to say in his book of his own conversion, Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. 
Thompson knew this, which is why he pictured his own salvation as God pursuing him. God seeking him. God finding him. God apprehending him. Thompson felt as if God was in relentless pursuit of him. And as much as Thompson tried, he could not escape the pursuing Lord. It was then that he penned what G.K. Chesterton called the greatest poem in the English language, entitled The Hound of Heaven. In it, Thompson described God as one who had pursued and chased him until he had seized him. The poem starts this way. It says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears I hid from him and underrunning laughter. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic insistency, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. He said, he fled, and he fled, and he fled, and he hid, and he ran some more, but God, like a hound chasing a hare, pursued and showed Thompson the emptiness of life that wasn't in Christ, and subsequently offered him his hand, which Thompson took. Reflected on the poem, JFX O'Connor said, The name Hound of Heaven is strange. It startles one at first. It's so bold, so new, so fearless, it does not attract, rather the reverse. But when one reads the poem, this strangeness disappears. The meaning is understood. As the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing near in the chase, with unhurrying and imperturbed pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace. And those in sin, he said, or in human love, away from God it seeks to hide itself. Divine grace follows after unwearyingly follows after, ever after till the soul feels its pressure forcing it to turn to him alone in that never-ending pursuit. Now I mentioned Lewis had somewhat of a similar experience of feeling the pursuing God and even mentions Thompson's poem in his book Surprised by Joy. This is what Lewis said. He said, you must picture me alone in my room in Magdalene night after night feeling whatever my mind lifted even for a second from my work the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet, talking about God. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Reluctant as Lewis may have been, he knew what Thompson knew, which was when it comes to the salvation of man, it all hinges on a pursuing God. And indeed, it must, for if God did not take the initiative, man could not be saved at all. But Lewis and Thompson also knew that once one was apprehended by God, life could never be the same again. These are the things we see in our text this morning. The story of a despised and hated tax collector interacting with Jesus is the final personal interaction that Jesus will have before he enters Jerusalem, and it's an important one. Why? Because it reminds us, this story, of why Jesus came. Does it not? Jesus gives his mission statement himself in verse 10. He came to do what? Seek and save the lost, to take divine initiative to reclaim fallen humanity. This scene shows us the kinds of reactions, 
both good and bad, that Jesus' saving of an outcast evokes. And this scene does what Jesus' words and actions always do, which is call for a choice to be made. It also, you'll notice, restates themes that we've discussed at length throughout this gospel as this gospel comes to its climax. So let's just work through this text and see what the Lord has for us, okay? The story opens in verse 1 with Luke giving us the scene. Jesus, still on his way to Jerusalem, draws ever nearer to the looming cross, and on the way, he must pass through Jericho. And it is in Jericho that he has an encounter that he knew that he would with a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus had apparently heard about Jesus. Like blind Bartimaeus from last week, Zacchaeus must have heard the sorts of things that Jesus was doing and teaching. Chapter 19 is the 11th time in Luke's gospel where tax collectors are mentioned. Jesus had, of course, been accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, even eaten with them. And indeed, one of his own disciples was a tax collector by profession when Jesus called him to follow him on the way. So perhaps Zacchaeus had heard from other tax collectors about how he related, Jesus related to people like him. Maybe he heard that Jesus was one of the few people in first century Palestine that had time for outcasts and the marginalized and the despised. Maybe he heard from other tax collectors a rumor that there was a traveling teacher who didn't hate them and didn't avoid people like them. Could it be, could there be someone like that and a rabbi to boot? But since Jesus' fame had spread, there were crowds who also wanted to see him, perhaps to touch him or get a healing of some kind. Now, Zacchaeus had a problem, didn't he, in his attempt to see Jesus? He was short, right? He couldn't see over the crowd. He was hated, so no one was going to let him cut in front to perhaps get a closer look at Jesus either. Like, I'm tall, so if I'm somewhere where there's a crowd and is something to be seen and a short person taps me on the shoulder or on the lower back because they're small and says, can I stand in front of you? I can't see. I'll let them go, right? Because I could see over most people. It wouldn't affect me at all. But Zacchaeus could have, in theory, done that. The problem was no one was going to let him cut in front because they hated his guts. No one is doing that man any favors, you understand. Why would they? See, now, this story is one of the most well-known in all of the Bible, yes? We see it, we do, as a humorous, sort of a humorous and cute story, do we not? Charles Spurgeon was once with some students from the pastor's college that he started. And one of the features of the college was uh, called the Question Oak, which was a large tree on Spurgeon's estate where students would gather on Friday afternoons to ask Spurgeon some questions. And sometimes Spurgeon would give students a random biblical text that he would just pick, and he'd have them preach it on the spot. On one occasion, he told a student to preach a sermon right there and then on Zacchaeus. And this is what happened. The student, student stood up and he said, Zacchaeus was of little stature. So am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree, so am I. Zacchaeus came down, so will I. And he went and he sat down with all the students as Spurgeon led them in a round of applause. Zacchaeus makes for a fun story, doesn't it? A man hanging out in a tree. 
and Jesus coming and calling him? That seems fun to us. We all know that kids like this story and they like singing that Zacchaeus was what? He was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. And you might have been singing that in your head when we read the text. He climbed up a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Now we get a kick out of this story. We like hearing about wee Zacchaeus. We see him in this favorable light, but this inadvertently takes away the shock and the scandal of Jesus' association with him and his impending salvation. Now, we've mentioned on multiple occasions, right, that tax collectors, who they were and how they were viewed. As I said, this is the 11th mention of tax collectors in this gospel. They were locals, right, who were contracted by Rome to collect taxes and who, if they so chose, could collect more than was necessary and pocket the rest. And they had the backing of Rome. So they could do whatever extorting they wanted, and the populace knew this was happening, and they were helpless, right? So they were traitors, and they worked for the occupiers. They were wealthy on the back of their fellow countrymen. They were classified with murderers and robbers. No one believed their testimony. It wasn't considered a sin to lie to them. They had no place in the synagogue. But Zacchaeus is worse, Because he isn't just a tax collector, is he? What's it say? He's the chief tax collector. So he was someone in charge of a bunch of other tax collectors. He was at the top. He called the shots. He oversaw all this extortion. Every time people in Jericho passed by his palatial mansion, they were reminded that it was their money and they're being taken advantage of that bought Zacchaeus that house. Look how well he's living, they might say. What a life he gets to live extorting us on behalf of Rome. Zacchaeus is not a likable guy. Okay, Michael Card said, let me state the obvious. Zacchaeus is not misunderstood. He is not the victim of circumstance. He is genuinely bad man. He has chosen to work for the Romans to bilk his own people. So successful is he at his job that he has risen in the ranks to become a chief tax collector. Now, people don't despise him because they're closed-minded and judgmental. They despise him because he is slimy, good-for-nothing thief, and he knows he is. Now, no wonder he's up a tree. But this all reminds us of what Luke is continually showing us, which is that Jesus seeks out the outcasts. The marginalized, the despised, the unlikely candidates, the ones who no one would guess are the ones who are invited into the kingdom of God. Has that not been clear in this gospel? The one no one's, no one has time for, Jesus has time for. That's what's been made abundantly clear in Luke's gospel. And as Card said there, Zacchaeus chose to be the type of person that he is. Understand, Rome didn't force people to be tax collectors. They had people bid to do it. So if Zacchaeus didn't volunteer, someone else would have stepped up. Zacchaeus' plight is Zacchaeus' own doing. And yet, Jesus offers grace and forgiveness to screw-ups and outcasts and scourges of society if they would repent and bend knee to him. You see what happens? Of all the people... Jesus could have talked to in the crowds. He walks right up to the tree, doesn't he? He looks up, and he addresses Zacchaeus by name. How does he know Zacchaeus' name? In the same way 
that he uh, knew the woman at the well had five husbands and a live-in boyfriend, right? The same way he could hear the internal thoughts of Pharisees in chapter 7. Because he is, as the creed says, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. But here we see an important truth about salvation, don't we? If salvation is to happen at all, it must be by the initiative of Jesus. Zacchaeus merely wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to get a glimpse of him. But as is the case with Jesus, he got more than he bargained for, didn't he? Jesus approached him. Jesus spoke to him. Jesus gives him the imperative of, I must stay at your house today. In verse 9, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. How? Why? Because Jesus came to his house. Do you see? Salvation doesn't come to Zacchaeus because of what Zacchaeus did, but because of who Jesus is. When Jesus says, draw your attention again to verse 10, Jesus' mission statement, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We must realize what he's saying. What does it mean that he came to seek and save the lost? It means he must have come from somewhere, right? Jesus is one who came from outside of space and time, from the heavenly places, from his spot above all worlds and the comfort of heaven in order to enter our mess and become flesh to seek and save that which was lost. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He left his father's throne above, as the old hymn says. So free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for help Adam's helpless race. This is what Jesus came for. Jesus is not just some guy who God chose to take up this task. He's not simply some moral teacher who told everyone to be nice to each other. He is pre-existent God. Do you guys realize this? Who spoke but a word and created all things out of nothing. Jesus tells a star, you go there and it goes. He tells a galaxy to be born and it doesn't. He tells a mountain to collapse or a sea to roar or a leaf to fall and all of them obey like that. And instead of allowing humanity to die in its sin, which he could have been well within his just right to do, he came and took on flesh to seek and save those who are what? Lost. C.S. Lewis asked in, in that section I quoted about his conversion, the introduction, this hypothetical. He said, how could Shakespeare and Hamlet ever meet? You know Hamlet, right? If Hamlet was a character... In the play, Shakespeare wrote by the same name. If he could meet Shakespeare, or even know that he existed, how could this come about? There's only one way, right? Shakespeare, the creator of Hamlet, would have to write himself into the play and arrange a meeting with Hamlet. Lewis said, if Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could initiate nothing. Don't you see that? in the person of Jesus, that God has actually done that. He has written himself into the story. We could not have taken the initiative to go and get him. 
if we are to know him and be saved by him, he would have to be the one who initiated our meeting and be the one who affected our salvation. We could do nothing. We, as Jonathan Edwards says, contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Trevor Wax said, Jesus had come to seek those left behind by everyone else. He came to save those deemed not worth the effort. He loved those whom no one else would love. He came to die for a world that didn't see the need for salvation. The good shepherd went looking for his sheep, not because he needed the sheep, but because the sheep would die without him. We would be doomed to eternal separation from God if not for a Savior who came seeking and saving the lost. Even Zacchaeus' climbing up the tree was a divine appointment. The Spirit of God has been working to get Zacchaeus to this point before he, Jesus ever entered Jericho. Every conversation overheard about Jesus, every whisper he heard about this rabbi who heals the blind and eats with sinners, was by divine providence to get him to this point. Even as he merely wants to catch a glimpse of Jesus, Jesus wants to be Zacchaeus' friend. More than that, he wants to be Zacchaeus' savior. That's why he came in the first place. If Zacchaeus is to be saved, it could only happen if Jesus comes up to him and says, I must come to your house. Salvation visits Zacchaeus' house because Jesus visited Zacchaeus' house. Now, we're going to talk about Zacchaeus' response in a moment, okay? But I have to draw attention to it now simply for us to recognize the order of things, okay? Do you notice it? It isn't that Jesus comes to him and says, <coughs> Zacchaeus, make some moral reforms, okay? Let me know when you're done and I'll come to your house. So he said, he doesn't say, Zacchaeus, get yourself cleaned up, then I'll come to your house. He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, give half your stuff away and repay those you've defrauded, and then you'll be saved. What does he do instead? He simply walks up to him and says, I'm going to your house. Is that what happens? In other words, Zacchaeus' actions in verse 8 are subsequent to Jesus' actions and initiatives. They are because of salvation, not for salvation. Do you see? Before Jesus walked up to him and called his name, Zacchaeus had exactly nothing to commend himself to Christ. He wasn't good. He wasn't moral. He wasn't well thought of. He wasn't worthy. He wasn't even someone who was trying to be good or get his act together. He was, up to this point, a wretched sinner. He was, figuratively and literally speaking, up a tree, also known as the sort of people that Jesus saves. Now, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones might be a name that's familiar with you. He's a preacher um, in the 20th century. He had a question that he would ask people who said they were Christians to see if they truly understood the gospel. Okay, He would ask are you ready to say that you are a Christian? And he says, often people would say this to that question. I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. And Lloyd-Jones says to this, they're still thinking in terms of themselves. 
You see, they have to do it. Sounds very modest, he said, to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough. But it's a very denial of the faith. How can I put it plainly, he said, it doesn't matter if you have almost entered into the depths of hell. It does not matter if you are guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It doesn't matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. Listen, you will never be good enough, he said. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of the Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough and that I am in him. You see? This is grace. Grace is, as Paul Zoll said, love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Now to Jesus' initiative towards sinner, there must be a response, yes? And in this text, we see many, don't we? Responses to Jesus' initiative. In response to Jesus' call for Zacchaeus to get down and to have Jesus at his house, we see Zacchaeus as an ideal response to the initiative of Christ. Notice the immediacy of it. Jesus says, I must stay at your house when? Today. And Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. There is no time to lose for Zacchaeus. There's no time to lose for us either, is there? Of course, God is patient and kind, is he not? God is long-suffering, but we must not delay in responding to coming and calling, Jesus coming and calling us by name. Some, like Francis Thompson and C.S. Lewis, put off salvation. They feel pursued upon by the Lord, and they hold off, but eventually come to faith. But there is no promise that any person has later to come to Christ, is there? Some he pursues, and they say later. 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 For one reason or another, maybe because they know they would have to part with their favorite sin. Maybe because they don't want to release control of their lives and destiny. But what if tomorrow does not come? Augustine said that God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow for your procrastination. My non-Christian friend, would you wait to come to Christ? My Christian friend, would you put off obedience in response to his grace? Because that's what some of you are doing. We asked in an earlier text in Luke, when will Jesus close the door of salvation to you personally and to the world? Do you know? You don't know. Could it be tonight? Could it be tomorrow? Could it be in a month? Could it be in a year? You have no idea. Neither do I. Would we procrastinate, pursuing that the door won't shut anytime soon on us or the world? You want to take that chance? You know, some people are waiting for a deathbed conversion. Why would we think we would get that? How often are people given that chance? There is an urgency in the call from Jesus. You may have tomorrow, but you may not. At some point, it's going to be too late. When will that be? Do you know? Zacchaeus' response is appropriate. He heard Jesus' call, and he obeyed at once. But you know, some people in this story don't like this, do they? And when I say some, I mean no one like this. What's verse 7 say? And when they saw it, they all grumbled. What'd they say? He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They can't believe that Jesus would lower himself to be the guest of someone so awful. It's bad enough that he talked to Zacchaeus, but to go and be a guest at his house, that's beyond the pale. 
See, when people charge Jesus of associating with tax collectors and sinners and eating with them, what they were saying was that Jesus was accepting them. We know Jesus wasn't accepting their sins, right? It was valid or okay, but eating with people in this context was seen as more than mere association. A meal was considered an intimate setting to eat with someone was to signal you accepted them. But Jesus wasn't just going to eat with Zacchaeus, is he? You see what it says? He's going to stay with him a while, perhaps several days. Jesus says, I must stay at your house. And the people complain. Why would Jesus do this? Of all the people that were gathered there, Jesus chose Zacchaeus to approach and talk to and stay with. It's offensive to them. What they're showing is that for all their excitement about Jesus, and this is something we need to realize too, for all the excitement about Jesus that they had, they've learned exactly nothing from his ministry. They like his miracles. Those are cool. They like taking their sick to him, perhaps get a healing. That's really nice. They like to hear him talk because he sounds so different from all the religious leaders of their day. But the moment he calls a notorious sinner, they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't like that one bit. That's the wrong kind of person to be associated with. They're showing that they didn't hear a thing he said, not truly, not from the heart. And I wonder, what disposition are you more like in this story? Are you someone who gladly, happily, joyfully sees Jesus' call and follows in obedience even when it gets hard? Or are you a grumbler? There cannot be more polar opposite dispositions than we, we see here, right? You can't be both, and you won't. You cannot be a rejoicer and a complainer at the same time. You can't follow in glad obedience while being discontented. One will overtake the other. Grumbling betrays a prideful, disordered heart. Grumbling makes one a critic rather than a pupil. Grumbling that God would save certain folks or work in a way that we aren't used to or don't like or about our circumstance is just another admittance that we think we know better than he does. If I were God, I'd order things a little differently. We say in our hearts, I'm sure God is trying his best, but I wouldn't save people like that. You know, I have to bring up C.S. Lewis again, and he'll show up one more time later. But he wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And what he does, it's an allegory where he portrays people who are in heaven, which is called the Green Plain, and people on the outskirts of hell, which he calls Greytown. And the people from heaven are solid and real people. They're whole. The people from Greytown are like ghostly. They're not solid. And they fear the light because they love the darkness. You see, the fear for the ghost is their realization that to dwell in heaven, they must, he says, give up their self-dependence and their misery, their anger and their grumbles. They cannot imagine being without the very things that deform them and keep them from happiness, and they shudder at the prospect of liberation and purification. Their sinful fear is a struggle against joy. It's a fear of light and refusal to let go of the darkness. The people here have the grumbles, because they have that same sort of pride that says that Jesus shouldn't associate with someone like that. Like Zacchaeus. 
because they think they're better than he is. They are more deserving of Jesus' attention and affection and acceptance. But the very fact that they have these thoughts shows that they are, ironically, further from apprehending the kingdom of God than that wicked tax collector is. Grumbling, you understand, is just another word for pride. And pride padlocks grace. How can you receive grace if you don't think you need it? Even if we say, I need grace, but not as much as that guy, then we don't really understand grace, do we? Pride gives us the grumbles because we don't want to give up that which makes us miserable because then we'll have to admit we've been wrong. Don't you see? But do you see what Jesus did here? Well, I need you to notice this. The, The people clearly hate Zacchaeus. But what happens when Jesus approaches him and calls him by name and declares that he's going to stay with him? Verse 7 says they grumbled, but who did they grumble against? Right? They grumble against Jesus. They aren't actually grumbling against Zacchaeus. The grumbles are against him. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. What has Jesus done? He takes on Zacchaeus' scorn. Jesus has taken the disdain that the crowd had for Zacchaeus, and he's taken it upon himself. And it is in Jesus' initiative and in his absorbing the scorn of the people on behalf of Zacchaeus and the grace and love that he has shown to someone who no one else has time to love for, that Zacchaeus responded in verse 8 with what he did. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Here's another contrast from the rich young ruler, isn't it? Who walked away sad. Zacchaeus, who is wealthy, we're told that by Luke, instead stands up and with joy says, I'm giving away half of what I have to the poor and those I have defrauded, I'm paying back fourfold. Now understand, Zacchaeus is going way above and beyond what is required of him by the law. The law never says to give away half of what you have. Not even close. Now, the law does say if you defraud someone, you must pay it back plus 20%. Okay? So 120% is what is required for this kind of extortion. Now, Zacchaeus knows he's defrauded people. It isn't a matter of if, but who and how much. But he says not that he's going to give 120% that the law requires, but what? 400%. what, What he's doing, people wouldn't consider generous but imprudent. Jesus doesn't say he has to do this, does he? Jesus doesn't require this in order for Zacchaeus to be saved. Rather, Zacchaeus is modeling for us, he's giving us an example of someone who has experienced the love and mercy of Christ. He is modeling repentance and a changed life in response to the gospel. This is what Jesus does. When one experiences the presence of Jesus, and is ruined in heart by who he is and what he has done, they will change. Not as a precondition for salvation, but as a result of it. They won't merely be improved, they'll be completely transformed. I told you I was going to mention C.S. Lewis again. He said that God is not after merely making people nice. He isn't trying to make just a collection of tidy citizens who are nice to each other and have good manners. 
He said, we must not suppose that even if we succeeded in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. And he said, for mere improvement is not redemption. The redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. See, Christianity is not, as some suppose, merely a way for people to just get better. Self-improvement is not the point. Helping you accomplish your goals isn't the point. The gospel isn't fundamentally about how to have a good marriage and well-adjusted kid. It's not about being nice and considerate. It's not about Jesus coming to us and tying us up a little bit and leaving us mostly unaffected. You remember Lewis's illustration about the house? He said, we have, if we imagine ourselves as a living house, When God comes in to rebuild the house, he starts doing things we don't so much mind, and we can understand him doing like odd jobs, like patching a leaky roof, fixing some drains, and so on. None of that surprises you. You know those things need to be done. But then you find he doesn't stop. He said, presently, he starts knocking the house about in ways that hurt terribly and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little college cottage, but he is building a palace he intends to come and live in himself. Zacchaeus is modeling that this is what is happening to him. He is undergoing a radical change and reorientation of life. He went from someone who was whose greed had led him to extortion and taking advantage of people and being inwardly focused to someone who is willing to pay a steep price in order to make amends with those he's wronged. He's focused outward instead of inward now. Do you see what, it, what has happened? Jesus shows us here that he is the one who could fit a camel through the eye of a needle. Do you see? In the salvation of this rich man. With man, it's impossible. With Jesus, it's possible. N.T. Wright said, but by the time he'd given half away and made fourfold restitution where necessary, we can imagine that he would find himself in very seriously reduced circumstances. Zacchaeus, he doesn't care. He has found something more valuable. Those who see Jesus for who he is and see what he's done to reclaim outcasts and rebels and sinners at a high cost to himself will be ones who are changed from inside out. The crowds weren't changed because they saw themselves as lesser sinners than Zacchaeus was. The rich young ruler wasn't changed because he loved his idol more than he loved Jesus. He wasn't changed because he saw his money control, and comfort as more worthy devotion than Jesus. The Pharisee in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee wasn't changed because he was a self, had a self-justifying posture of external performance. He was trying to be accepted from outside in rather than being changed from the inside out. But what about Zacchaeus? 
He's someone who has been transformed in heart because of his encounter with Jesus. And what happens then? This flows out to sacrificial deeds that would some would consider imprudent. Can, can I ask you, friend, are you someone who has heard their name called by Jesus and received him and been changed? Is there evidence in your life that you have encountered this glorious Christ? Zacchaeus' deeds, you understand, were not the root of his salvation, but the fruit of it. There's a big difference, right? They were evidence that he's been transformed from the inside out, which works outward. His internal heart change has been shown through external deeds. In his change from focusing on himself to focusing on others, in his going from greedy to generous, in his going from one who, with power to one who served, in his willingness to sacrifice in order to bless. Now make no mistake, we are justified and saved as we established by the initiative of Christ and his work alone. Yes, salvation is all of God, damnation all of man. Zacchaeus shows that here. He shows this order. Saved by Christ, and then he responds with deeds in a, from a changed heart. Because, as Calvin said, if it is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Meaning works result from meritless salvation. Charles Spurgeon had an illustration uh, that illustrated this well. He said, a tree has been planted out into the ground. Now the source of life to that tree is the root, whether it has apples on it or not. The apples would not give it life, but the whole of life of the tree would come from its root. But if that tree stands in the orchard, and when springtime comes, there is no bud. And when the summer comes, there is no leafing and no fruit bearing. But the next year and the next, it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit. You would say it is dead and you would be correct. It is dead. It is not that the leaves could have made it live, but that the absence of the leaves is a proof that it is dead. So too, he says, it is with the Christian. If you have life, that life must give fruit. If not fruit, works. If his faith has root, but it, there are no works, then depend upon it. The inference that he is spiritually dead is certainly a correct one. We say, don't we, that Jesus loves us so much that he will meet us where we are? Have you heard that before? You believe that to be true? Jesus loves us so much he meets us where we are, yes? And this is true. But is it not also true that he loves us too much to leave us where he found us? If he knows us to be helpless sinners who got ourselves into this mess through our rejection of God and his ways, who love the very sins that are killing us and making us unhappy, then why would he leave us where he found us? That would be a profound bummer. If he finds me in the gutter, would we call it love for him to come up to me in the gutter and say, you're in the gutter and I love you anyway, just know that, okay, I'll see ya. Or would it be love for him to find me in the gutter and then take me out of it? Jesus saves and transforms, don't you see? Any salvation which says to Jesus, give me salvation, give me heaven, but don't ask me to change. Don't call me to sacrifice. Don't make me follow. Is a salvation which must be regarded as counterfeit. 
One cannot truly meet Jesus and remain the same. Attachment to Christ means that one receives from him life. And the more one looks at Christ, the one more desires Christ. And the more one desires Christ, the more one desires less and less of those things that would keep you from him. And out from this attachment to Jesus must flow deeds done from a heart set free, free from the opinions of people and the slavish bonds of needing anything but him to be happy. Have you encountered this Jesus? How do you respond when he calls your name? Are you someone who has been changed by him? Are you someone who is living for him? Unless you see, like Zacchaeus did, that Jesus is worth more than all of earth's treasure, you will not be willing to sacrifice. Unless you see that his estimation of you is worth more than what people think of you, you will not be someone who lives a radical life of obedience to him. See, some of you may be holding back from obedience to Jesus because you are overly concerned with what people think of you. Maybe some of the students who are in here are afraid that your peers will think you live too much for Jesus. You don't want them to think you're too religious, right? So you hold back, or maybe you give in to peer pressure. But you know what? Can I say to the students here? Some of you adults are doing that too. Some of you are influenced more by your peers than you are of what Jesus calls you to be and do. Some of you are being affirmed in your sin rather than hearing Jesus' call to kill it. Some of you are afraid of what your friends and family will think if you go too far with this Jesus thing. What if they think you're strange? You better keep your Christianity respectable and tame. That's what the world likes, right? Respectable and tame Christianity. But is that what Jesus calls for? A respectable religion that is indistinguishable from nice and tidy and put together unbelievers on their way to hell? Zacchaeus didn't give a rip what people thought of him, did he? Here we have a grown man wearing a robe, climbing a tree. There is nothing respectable about that. Nor did Jesus care what people thought. He went into that man's house, he absorbed the crowd's scorn, and he'd take upon their scorn once more in a week's time as he was tried, mocked, spit upon, cursed, flogged, and executed in their place. Some of you are holding back on obedience and followership of Jesus because you're just afraid of what it will cost. Some of you are doing that. And I'm not going to reassure you and say that following Jesus won't cost. If you follow Jesus the way he says to follow him, it will cost. But I'll assure you of this, it will be worth it. Because he is worth it. Because he came to seek and save that which is lost, you. You know, David Platt, he tells of a time when he was pastoring in Birmingham. One of the wealthiest men in the church came to his office after Platt had preached a sermon on the rich young ruler. And he looked at Platt and he said, I think you're crazy for saying some of the things you're saying. And then he paused for a moment. He said, but I think you're right. 
And so now I think I'm crazy for thinking some of the things I'm thinking. And then he went on to say that he was going to sell his large house and give away most of his possessions. He talked about the needs he wanted to invest in, his resources in for the glory of Christ. Then he looked at Platt with tears in his eyes and he said, I wonder at some point if I'm being irresponsible or unwise. But then I realized there's never going to come a day when I stand before God and he looks at me and says, I wish you would have kept more for yourself. I'm confident that God will take care of me, he said. Zacchaeus was confident in this because, as Wright said, he has found something more valuable than the things or reputation. Have you? You know, on that day, a week or so before the most important week in history, a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus came down from a tree at the behest of Jesus. But soon, Jesus will leave Zacchaeus' house and he'll head to Jerusalem, and he himself will go up a tree shaped like a cross at the place of the skull in order to take on more than just the jeers of the crowds, but to take on their sin and your sin and my sin so that redemption could be offered sinners like you and me. Our scene ends with Jesus saying more to the crowd than to Zacchaeus. Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is why he came. He came, as Robert Capone said, to call sinners, not the pseudo-righteous. He came to raise the dead, not to buy drinks for the marginally alive. It was only those who realize they are lost that can be found. Only the dead can be raised to life. Only those who apprehend that lengths at which very God of very God would go to get them, only those who are ruined in heart by the beauty of Christ will be found. Is that you?